Got to turn that on, don't I? Well, good morning. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, my name's Tony Anderson. I have the privilege of serving here on staff as the executive pastor and the pastor of counseling. And I'm excited to be here to teach today. And from the book of Nehemiah, Doug and Jackie are away for some planned vacation. And so um, I get the privilege of continuing our story of Nehemiah. Um, If you weren't here last week, uh, Doug started our series from Nehemiah, which we're calling Restoring the Broken and Burned. If you haven't heard that message yet, I really encourage you to go back. He did a great job of laying the foundation and the context. I won't have the time to do that, but I do want us to briefly remember where we are in the history of the Old Testament. And last week, the whole message memo was this timeline. If you were here, you remember this. So just as a bit of review, we have obviously from the beginning, the creation of the world, Adam and Eve. Obviously we have original sin comes into the world, followed by the flood, the Tower of Babel, where the, uh, the nations are dispersed. And then we have the period of the patriarchs where God has made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that through their people, he, they will bring forth a great nation from which a savior will come. We have their period of time where they are slaves in Egypt, and then he raises up a leader, Moses, who leads them out of Egypt, and through God's power, he parts the Red Sea, he gives the law to Moses, they get the promised land, and after a period of judges, they have a united kingdom under three kings of Saul, David, and Solomon, but after Solomon, the nation is divided into the northern uh, nation, which is referred to as Israel, 10 tribes, the southern uh, kingdom of Judah with two tribes. And after a period of rebellion against God, God brings the Assyrians who uh, capture Israel and disperse those people across different lands. A few years later, God uses the Babylonians to uh, defeat Judah. Those people are dispersed and they they are in exile and in captivity for a period of 70 years. When then under God allows under Zerubbabel and Ezra that some of the Jews are allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But it's at that period of time that we find Nehemiah. Now in your Bibles, if you go ahead and if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is sort of in the middle of the Old Testament, but as Doug explained to us, uh, chronologically, it's actually the last book of the Old Testament. Um, Nehemiah and the prophet Malachi are contemporaries, and they are the last books in the Old Testament. And that's where we are in this story. So our text today is going to be chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. And we see, as we talked about last week, that Nehemiah gets news from his brothers that although the temple has been rebuilt, this, the, gate, the wall is broken and the gates are burned. And he weeps and mourns for that. Now, I think it's interesting that we have to realize that Nehemiah is a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. And he was born in captivity. He, he never knew Jerusalem. He is broken over a city that he has probably never seen, never been there, never saw it in all its glory, yet he's broken over it. He wasn't content just to live his cushy life. You think about it, he, he will find out today he was cupbearer to the king. And he lived in the palace in Susa, and he was basically set for life or death, depending on if someone tried to poison the king. But he had a good life, but it wasn't enough. 
he was heartbroken over the condition of Jerusalem. And um, we recognized last week that there are things broken in our world today. Things are broken in the world today. And Doug challenged us as a body that if we're going to respond to the brokenness, it begins with each of us being broken over the things that break God's heart, that are broken in the world. So if you were not here last week, we were each given the opportunity to come and take a piece of rubble and write on a piece of rubble things that break our heart personally and given the opportunity to place them up here on stage. And I've had the opportunity all week to look at this. There are many things that break your heart, and that's good. That's what, that is a good step that we would be broken over uh, the things that break God's heart, that we're not just content to be aware of it, but that we are broken over it. So we pick up in the story of Nehemiah today. We see the first thing he does is pray. We have one of the, we're studying today the first prayer of Nehemiah, and we're going to pick up in verse four, like I said. So if you have your Bibles, follow along, but they'll be, it'll be up on the screen. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell." They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. So we, as we study this prayer, we have to recognize that this is a specific prayer that Nehemiah prayed about a specific situation in history. So we have to be careful what we glean from that prayer that's applicable to us. But I do think as we study this prayer today, we can see there are certain aspects of Nehemiah's prayer that we can apply to our prayer for the broken. But let's don't lose sight of the fact that the first thing he did do was pray. I think a lot of times when we think about the broken, we can get all worked up, but do we actually pray? As I look at some of the things that are written on this, on the rubble here of the conditions and the things that go on in this world, I know I've been in groups and I could be guilty of that where we wanna to talk to each other about it and can't believe how bad things are gotten, have gotten and say things like, what's gonna happen with our children, our grandchildren, or we go online or we watch news or we go down rabbit trails and we get worked up about it, but do we actually pray? So let's not lose sight of the fact that the first thing Nehemiah did was pray. So what can we glean from this? Well, you see from the beginning of Nehemiah's prayer, he is clearly acknowledging who God is. He is expressing both his praise of and his faith 
in the person of God. So I've titled this the three P's of powerful prayer. I think your outline says three P's of power prayer. That's on me. That's my typo, or I could blame it on my assistant, Tanya, T-O-N-Y-A. You can reach her at CFC Jacks. <laughs> so anyway, I always have someone to blame it on. But it's three P's of powerful prayer. Power prayer works too. That's what we're up to today. What we're up to about today is prayer. So we see that he focused on the praise of and his faith in the person of God. You recognize we don't praise things that we don't actually believe or have faith in. So praise and faith are tied together. He's focusing on the inherent characteristics and attributes of God. And we see that throughout the prayer. We, he acknowledges you are Lord, you are Yahweh, you are Elohim, God of heaven. You are great and awesome. He says, you preserve the covenant. God made a covenant with the people and Nehemiah knows that this covenant's gonna be kept. It's, by your, it's gonna be because of you, not because of us. He says, you were able to scatter. Now, you know, you think about it in the world and when there's war and everything, we think about the nations. Some people could have said, well, the Assyrians did it, the Babylonians did it. Nehemiah knew, God, you did the scattering and you will do the gathering as well. And you have redeemed our people, the Jewish people, by your great power and your strong hand. You're the one that parted the Red Sea. You gave us manna by day. You're the ones that had the walls of Jericho come tumbling down because all we did was walk in a circle. He acknowledged the person of God. So when we talk about the person of God and the power of, and who that is, we're talking at street level about the power of God. The power of God. Nehemiah believed who God said he was and he knew he could do whatever he wanted because he said, you're great and awesome. You're able to gather, scatter, keep your covenant. You have a great power and strong hand. And so when we talk about God's power, we're frequently talking about, and what we usually are talking about is the sovereignty of God. Now, this isn't in your outline, but I just like to do things in threes today. So I thought I would spell it out. When God, we're talking about his sovereignty, we're saying God is omnipotent. He is all powerful. There is nothing he can't do. We look at this, whatever is required to bring good about in, the, in this pile of rubble, he can do it. He is also omniscient. He's all knowing. He knows the past. He knows the present. He knows the future. He knows the heart of every one of us better than we do. And he knows what is needed in every situation. And he is omnipresent. He is everywhere. So this past week, when you were thinking about what was broken, like Nehemiah, when we prayed him, we have to remember, there's nothing too hard or impossible with God. There's nothing he doesn't know, past, present, or future. Because do you ever sometimes wonder, how does he not know this? Or we think about other people who are in trouble. It's like, why do they not know this? We can rest assured God knows everything and he is everywhere. We are never alone. And maybe the people we are broken over, we can know that they are never alone, that God is in the situation. So God is all sovereign, all powerful. But you know what? In and of itself, if you think about it, that's not very comforting because it wouldn't, we wouldn't trust God if he just had all that power and sat on the sideline and watched, right? I mean, he... Sovereignty is an attribute of God, but it doesn't tell us anything about what he does with it. And so we see in Nehemiah's prayer that he's also focusing on the providence of God. 
the providence of God. Now, providence is not a word you'll find in the Bible. I think in the NASB, the word appears once, but it refers to uh, a Jewish king in Acts. It doesn't refer to God. Some translations, it doesn't appear at all. But it's definitely a concept. The providence of God is definitely a concept that's taught in the scripture. And the word providence comes from a combination of two words, meaning to provide for. And it also includes for the concept of see to it. God's going to use his sovereignty to see to it. Now, have you ever, do you know someone that if you need something done and you ask them, you know it's going to get done? They'll see to it. You know, as I was thinking about this, it occurred to me at CFC, we have a maintenance team that we is the best around. They will see to it. Doug Herring and Nick and Danny and Mike, they, you won't believe the things that they get done every week. When you have a staff like us who's always coming up with ideas and our default is, well, Mike and his guy, or Doug and his guys can do it. Like about 10 days before the first sermon, we had a change of plans and they said, well, we want a pile of rubble on a platform here. They saw to it. How about the rubble? Nick went to his property, brought bricks here, and he and Danny created 2,000 pieces of rubble so that we can have this visual in front of us for the next 13 days. They see to it. So if you see them, I hope that you will thank them because they definitely see themselves, and I, we do, as ministers of our facilities here. So God's providence, though, really, his, we refer to as his purposeful sovereignty. He uses that power to accomplish his purposes. He says in Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning, in other words, God knows the beginning. He's going to know the end. And from ancient times, things which have not been done saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So he's going to exercise his power to accomplish his purposes. Whatever he decides will happen, will happen. And so what is his purpose? Well, the Westminster Confession defines it this way, talking about God's providence. He upholds, he directs, he disposes and governs all creatures. That means each one of us, actions and things from the greatest, from the cosmos to the heavens to the least, microcell biology, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible, which means without error, foreknowledge and the free and immutable, not capable of change, counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. See, God's purpose in his providence is that we, his people, might praise him, but not just one aspect. Oh, I praise your grace, or I praise your mercy. He wants us to praise all things about him, his total package of attributes. So we see that the purpose of God is the praise of his glory. He has all power, which he will exercise to accomplish his purposes, which is that we would praise his glory. So why, Tony, are you talking about this in prayers over the brokenness? Because I think of it this way. If we think of God as only a selfish egomaniac who just wants props, then we're not going to be very encouraged to pray. And we're not going to have much faith and trust in that God. But... The Bible makes it clear that the revealing of his glory is actually for our joy. 
It's actually for our joy. John Piper in his new book on Providence says it this way. This is not an attitude of self-promotion, but instead the pursuit of sharing the greatest pleasure possible for all who would have it. For his glory does not mean to get glory which he doesn't already have. We have to understand that when, when we're praising him, we're not, he doesn't have a glory deficiency. Rather, to display and vindicate and communicate his glory for the everlasting enjoyment of his people. That is for all those who, instead of resenting God's self-exaltation, receive him as their supreme treasure. Piper gives this analogy then that clicked with me. Maybe it will with you. Can you imagine you live in a community where there's a lot of illness and sickness and a doctor comes in, a, we'll call a quack doctor. I can make fun of doctors because they made fun of lawyers for many years, so I can do that. <laughs> but let's imagine that this doctor says, well, I'm in a community with a lot of sick people. And so sick people like to try medicines. They like to try procedures. So I can advertise myself as this great doctor and line my pockets, selfish promotion. But compare that with someone who truly is the best doctor ever, who says, I have the cure that will make you all well. And I want to come and elevate that and display it so that you can participate in that. It's a totally different mindset. And that's what God is doing when he wants to work all things to the praise of his glory so that we will see it come to him and experience joy in him. So when we get lost, we can get bogged down in the rubble. We can pray God is working in this. And when he does, it will be to the praise of his glory. Now, the Bible has a wealth of passages that talk about what, we just, uh, what I just said. But if you remember, we were just a year in Ephesians and the very first chapter, four times or three times in that chapter, we see that term. It says, in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That's why I love that song that Matt and Aaron wrote about to the praise of his glory. He is working everything to the praise of his glory. And that means we experience the joy and delight of seeing it. Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan says, God's goal is not simply that the glory of his perfections shine, but that we find God's glory praiseworthy. Praiseworthy is more, it's not simply acknowledging, yeah, God, you're great right? We can acknowledge something good without praising it. Now, I'm a longtime Boston Red Sox fan. The Yankees obviously are the dreaded villains. I can acknowledge Derek Jeter as a good player, longtime Yankee captain and shortstop, but I can't tell you he brought me a lot of joy and delight, all right? Quite the opposite, actually. When we praise God, we're not just acknowledging who he is, but we are taking joy and delight in it. C.S. Lewis, well, even Nehemiah, you see in verse 11, in the midst of his brokenness over this, he's saying, hear the prayers of your servants who delight to revere your name. They still, even in the brokenness, were delighting in him. They remembered who he was, what he had done for the people, and they were delighting in his name. C.S. Lewis says, maybe this will help. 
I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. Maybe if you're married, you realize this. You love your, I love my wife, but it's, it seems it's not as joyful until I tell her. It's like, I have a great wife. In fact, next month, 39 years, she was here Thursday. I, I love her more today than ever. And if I couldn't tell her that, it would not, I would not be as delighted in it. In fact, on Thursday, she, pretty impressive, she pressure washed the whole house in the back porch. It's like, yes, that is, I delight in that for sure. <laughs> so, but he goes on to say, God's pursuit of our praise for his glory is his pursuit of the consummation of our enjoyment of that glory. See, he's working so that our praise for his glory is his pursuit of the consummation of our enjoyment of that glory. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. God is all powerful, but he knows he loves us so perfectly that he uses his power to display who he is. And he knows our greatest joy will be delighting in him, the person of God, and not anything made by him. Delight in him, not what he created. We think of the brokenness in the world today, but think through history. Think maybe of your own personal life. The greatest miscarriage of justice in the world was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Innocent man crucified. But then we stop back and think, how else could God's holiness and righteousness and his wrath be satisfied? And at the same time, he loves us enough that we receive grace and mercy and an opportunity to have eternity with him. Wow. Or how about you think about when you're perplexed and confused? It's like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And either God through his word or a Christian brother or sister who brings the word to you, you get his wisdom and go, oh, that, that is wisdom from above. Or you know you are weak. You cannot go on. But when you pray, you go, he is strong. Or when your own sin results in the brokenness. A lot of the brokenness here is a result. We, we put ourselves in that and we go, I receive mercy after mercy. Mercy new each day. That's only of God. Or when our friends and family betray us. That hurts, right? When the, those closest to you betray you. But you know, God is faithful. He is always there. Or you have a desperate need, physical need, and he provides your daily bread. It's only through those things that we see and start praising and delighting in God. So I want us as a church, think of it this way. He will work. And have you Think, have you ever been watching a sporting event where your team wins, last second, ninth inning home run, Hail Mary pass, win a championship? You go, well, that was good. Do you know what the reaction is? It's, yes! You're fist bumping, you're high-fiving. Can you imagine just sitting there? Well, that was good. The joy over your team winning isn't complete until you get to celebrate. And it's even better when you're celebrating with brothers and sisters. 
So I wanted to get a picture. I think I want to show you a picture of what I think it's going to be like. We get pictures of this in this life and then what it's going to be like in heaven on steroids all the time for eternity is to the praise of his glory. And I have to thank, now I'm not a big soccer fan, but those fans are crazy. So I want you to think this is what heaven's going to be like on steroids. But I'm serious. That's what it's going to be like forever. Do we ever, is that ever your reaction to anything God's done in your life? Or do we focus on what he's made rather than who made it? But that's what, when he, when we at some point see him work in the broken, it's going to be like that. And so Nehemiah knew that in his prayer. He knew that that powerful God will remember the covenant. He knows that God can preserve the covenant. He knows that God did the scattering. He, by the way, it says in the scriptures, he, God did the scattering again for the praise of his name. And he was gonna gather them again for the praise of his name. He knows that God could bring them for the fur, from the farthest places on the earth. He would restore Jerusalem. He would fulfill the covenant and bring joy to all the nations. Jeremiah 33.9, Nehemiah probably knew this passage. This city, Jerusalem, will be a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I do for them, and they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. So heartbrokenness, when we're broken over the broken, it should begin with prayer that praises and expresses faith in a powerful God who is going to bring about his purposes, which will result in the praise of his glory. So if he's an all-powerful God, we also know that he is a promise-keeping God. And our prayer should focus on the promises and priorities of God. The promises and priorities of God. We see in the prayer that Nehemiah says, he refers to him as you who preserve the covenant. You make a covenant, you keep the covenant. You're not only a promise maker, you're a promise keeper. And he asked him to remember the word that you made, the covenant you made. So again, in this case, Nehemiah is referring to a specific covenant made to this situation, probably from Leviticus 26, which uh, says like as such, Verse 38, but you will perish among the nations and your enemy's land will consume you. Well, that sure came true. Nehemiah was living it right now. They had been dispersed among the nations. But then same passage, God says, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers, verse 42, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land. When they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God, but I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors. So Nehemiah is saying to God, remember the word. 
Now, when he does, that you spoke to Moses. By the way, I think a lot of times we say, well, the Bible's so old, and how do we know? You realize he is calling on a covenant that was written a thousand years before Nehemiah. We have to remember, that's a big timeline. So he is saying, remember the covenant you made a thousand years ago. And is he concerned then that God forgot? God, you know, as he looked around, it could appear that way. But he has already acknowledged that he's an all-powerful God, so he doesn't get amnesia. So when he says, remember, what he's asking God to do is activate your promise. Bring it to pass now in this time. Because from the look of things to outsiders, it would look like God had failed in his covenant. There was no nation of Israel that the other nations could see. There was no blessing, no redemption, and so God would seem like a liar. And Nehemiah was concerned about that. He was concerned about God's reputation. It still strikes me that he had a cushy life. He could have said, well, at least for the rest of my life, things will probably be okay. But he was concerned about God's reputation and he wanted the covenant to be brought to pass. So he wanted the restoration of Jerusalem so that the the Messiah could come from the people and a blessing would be to all nations, including the nation he was serving at the time. For us, as we look at what's broken today, are we aware of the specific promises that God has made? So on your screen here, you may take a screenshot. I'll walk through a couple. Here are some specific promises that I asked the staff. I said, when you think of brokenness or trials you've had in your life, what specific promises have you remembered and prayed and seen God deliver on? And what I want us to, what I, my point is, I don't want us to be aware of the promises. I want us to pray the promises. What do I mean by that? Romans 8, 28 and 29, if we know God says, in all things, he works for good for those who love him. And in verse 29, he defines good as he's working in all things to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. So in the trial, in the rubble, whatever it is that is burdening you, are you praying, Lord, in this, make me more like Jesus? I think sometimes we say, well, I'm aware of that promise, but I'm praying something else and then sort of see that as a um, consolation prize. Well, God didn't do what I wanted, but at least I know somehow he's making me more like Jesus. See the difference? It's God in this, make me more like Jesus. Matt alluded to it. Sometimes he may remove the brokenness in our present time. Sometimes he might not, but he will conform you to the image of his son. So do you realize in all things, God is working for a constructive purpose. This might look like destruction, but in all things, God is working it for a constructive purpose in the life of the believer. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation is overtaking you except such as common to man. But with the temptation, God is faithful and he will provide a way of escape so you will be able to endure it. That promise there is no matter what you're experiencing, there will never be a situation where sin is your only option. There's always a righteous path forward in whatever trial you have. Revelation 5, 9, there's a promise there will be saints from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. A lot of people are broken about unreached people groups. 
So tonight as we gather, we can say, Lord, make this promise true for the Shamar people in our lifetime. James 1, 5 through 6, give me wisdom in my time of need. I mean, we, we can look at this and go, I don't know what to do. But the, the Bible says God will grant wisdom and give it generously without finding fault. There are also passages, though, that speak to the heart of God and the purposes of God. They may not contain an absolute promise, but we do see his heart and his priorities. So some examples of those, Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. I picked that one because of their numerous uh, bricks up here about broken marriages and families. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 tells us that God intended when man and woman were to leave and cleave and become one flesh, that it was intended to represent the relationship between Jesus Christ as the perfect bridegroom and the church as his bride. So that means my marriage, your marriage, if you're married, is to be a billboard of that relationship between Jesus and the church. So that's true. When we have broken marriages, we can pray specifically, God, we know your heart is each marriage is to picture Jesus in the church. Bring that to pass in this marriage or these marriages or these families. James 1.27, we know God's heart for widows and orphans because he says pure and undefiled religion is to care for them. Psalm 68.5 through 6, it says, he will be a father to the fatherless, a judge for the widows and a home for the lonely. Several uh, people wrote loneliness on here. Lord, you're gonna be a home for the lonely. Be a home for this person, these people. So what's the obvious takeaway from this as we're praying the promises of God? What's the obvious takeaway for us? We gotta know this, right? We have to know what the promises are. We have to be in God's word because we will only know God's will from his word. First John tells us this. It says, this is the confidence we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked from him. So when we know God's will and we present and ask him to bring it to pass, we know he hears and he will act on it in his time, but he will bring it to pass. We can't know his will if we don't study it. Frankly, in the counseling ministry, I've found a lot of people who are experiencing brokenness and it's compounded by the fact that they don't know God's word and therefore they're not encouraged by the scripture. They don't know the scriptures to be encouraged by it. Or maybe worse yet is they uh, attribute promises to God that he didn't make. You know, if I'm a believer, then I shouldn't have a prodigal child or I shouldn't have this. I've done all the things right. And so to them, by attributing things to God, promises that God didn't make, not only are they not encouraged, they are discouraged because they see God as a as a liar or someone who doesn't keep his promises. We have to know the word and we have to know it in context. So my question to you is, what are you doing now intentionally to know the promises of God? What, what steps are you taking more than just maybe a perfunctory reading the scriptures for five minutes every month? What are you doing to understand the promises and then be able to pray them? We have several ways you can uh, 
can be equipped here at the chapel. One of the ways that we just wrapped up was the counseling discipleship training. We offer that regularly. But I got this email from a gentleman, and I thought it really captured what this prayer can teach us. This gentleman wrote, I found the course extremely helpful and meaningful, much more so than the first time I enrolled. I know my personal spiritual growth over the intervening years had much to do with this. It has laid bare a deficiency of scriptural references when simply helping friends or those who have asked me for prayer. In my quest to address this, this current course has been a significant help, in particular with illness and moments of crisis. He's now equipped to pray in those situations, the specific promises of the scriptures. So some other ways we have some classes here, scriptural staff for your soul and strong, firm, and steadfast. One is for the ladies, one for men, designed specifically for people who are hurting or want to help people who are hurting. And we have Bible, free Bible uh, studies over in the Hope Resource Center in the table. You can go over there. They're free. They're, again, designed to help you understand the promises of Scripture. So the first two Ps of our powerful prayer focused on the person of God, who he is, and his promises. But the third thing we learn from Nehemiah's uh, prayer is it comes from the pure heart of the petitioner. From the pure heart of the petitioner. Nehemiah acknowledged that he was there confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. And then he says, we acted very corruptly. And he references the fact that they're in that situation because if you, Israel, are unfaithful, he would scatter. So he knew God's word, like we said. He knew God promised to restore them if they confess their sins. So what does Nehemiah do? Seems obvious. He confessed his sins. But sometimes we're not so quick to do that. Nehemiah humbled himself and asked for forgiveness. He knew the people had acted corruptly. So remember, Nehemiah was not alive when they were exiled. He could have said, well, I know what my forefathers did, but he recognized his own sin and he asked forgiveness. He recognized his own sin might've been causing or why God delayed in restoring Jerusalem. And so he acknowledged his own sin and confessed them to God. I think if we want our prayers to be effective, we need to be confessing our sin to God and to others regularly and specifically. And my concern is we don't do that. We conf- why is that? Well, why do I say that? Well, because I understand I'm not that good at it. I can be aware generally that I've sinned, but do I ask God's forgiveness specifically? Or others. So you may be nonchalant about sin because you're thinking, well, I didn't kill anybody, I didn't commit adultery. So in your mind, that sin of grumbling and complaining doesn't seem like a big deal. Or your sinful anger, which you dress up as frustration, and then you don't ask God or others for forgiveness. Or maybe none of your relationships are broken. And so it's like, well, we just sort of, you know, let water off a duck's back and everything. We just sort of go with the flow. We don't ever ask forgiveness and nothing seems too bad. So we don't ask forgiveness. Maybe you don't see the connection between your sin and the brokenness that burdens you. I mean, think about the person who may say I'm broken over the sex trafficking, but I don't zealously try to run from my 
sin of pornography or sexual immorality. We don't see the connection. If you're nonchalant about confession, then it's almost certain that you don't think your sin is making your prayer ineffective. If you're nonchalant about confession, then you don't think it has an effect on your prayer. But just like scripture to Israel, God has made several warnings and promises to us. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, then the Lord will not hear. Again, he's, he's not deaf, he's omniscient. He's just saying he won't give heed to your prayer if we're hanging on to wickedness. This verse now becomes much clearer. It, we study it in the context of the role of the husband. It says, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. It now becomes obvious. If God says, my priority is that your marriage would reflect the relationship between Jesus and the church, and you, Tony, are not living with your wife in an understanding way, if you are not accurately reflecting Christ to the world, then get, get out of here with those other prayers. Focus on what I've revealed to you. I get this picture of this big NBA center, and I'm up there trying to loft up some shot. He's just swatting it away. Be about what I told you to be about and then bring those prayers here. Conversely, James 5, 6 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. It's clear that our heart before, the God, before God impacts our prayer. So why would we be reluctant to confess our sins? What is it? What's the heart condition? And it's clearly pride. I have to acknowledge I was wrong to God and to others. And God tells us, he gives a greater grace. It says God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. This word for opposed is a military term. It means to come against. If I'm pridefully not confessing my sin, it says God will turn and oppose me. And I'm not gonna win that one. I get this picture of him just stiff arming me through a wall. It's like, I will do what it takes to humble you. But when you humble yourself, I'll give a greater grace, enabling grace, strength. That's what we need. And you may be thinking, I've sinned too much. It just, I get tired of go, going back to God over and over again. Surely he loses patience. But the promise in 1 John 1, 9 is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love this verse, faithful and righteous or faithful and just. He's faithful and he's a promise keeper. He says, if you come to him confessing your sins, you will receive forgiveness. And for those of us who may struggle with, well, I've sinned so many times, he is just. His justice requires forgiveness. Why do I say, why would it say that? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the penalty has been paid. It would be unjust for God to try to seek payment again from you. If you have placed faith in Christ, he is your substitute, he is your sin bearer. God's righteousness and justice would require him to forgive you. So what we're gonna do, we're gonna take a moment which one of you wants to sacrifice your elements for me? 
and this gentleman's going to replace it for you. So I had one, somebody, ah, there it is. Okay. So I know if you were here good Friday, you had to make sure your first scent is not grumbling. Okay. Let's go ahead and take the wrapper off. As you're doing that, this is what what I want you to spend some time with the Lord. Maybe you have not placed faith in Christ and accepted him as your sin bearer. And so you're coming to him for that first time forgiveness where your penalty is paid and the righteousness of Christ is credited to you. I would encourage you to do that. Or maybe though you recognize, you know, I've been sort of lackadaisical or apathetic in my confession. And I don't want my lack of confession to hinder my prayer for what burdens me, what's broken in the world today. So take some moments right now and pray and ask the Lord's forgiveness. privilege to pray, to have prayers that are used by you to bring about your purposes. And we want those prayers to be effective. And so we're grateful that through the blood of Jesus, we receive forgiveness and we can come to you each day and receive grace and mercy. So, and with thankful hearts, we take, let's take together. Once you receive the elements, I invite you to stand. We'll declare this together in response. What a Savior we have.
Give us to empower us. He, I love that we can remember if we confess, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So let's be a people who are regularly confessing our sins to Him. We bring our petitions to Him. And if we can pray for you individually right now, some of you really may uh, need someone to pray with you. Uh, we have men and women um, between the two auditoriums just out the back uh, who are there to pray with you personally. So I hope you will take advantage of that. Let's go before the Lord together. It's what we do. We petition our great God for each other. So I hope to see you tonight at the Red to Green dinner, and we'll see you later. Have a great rest of the afternoon. Thanks for being here.